The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. It's our first podcast since the primary elections, and the race for governor is set after Governor Baker and Democrat Jay Gonzalez comfortably defeated their respective primary opponents. There are 60 days to go until the general election, and Matt Murphy, what have the candidates been focused on during this first week of the final campaign? Well, Sam, one of the problems with the late primary in Massachusetts is it means that once the parties have chosen their respective nominees, there's really not a whole lot of time for those two candidates or more in some cases to go head to head in the general election. But this week we saw that sometimes before you get on the field, you need to set some of the ground rules. And that started right away on Wednesday morning when Jay Gonzalez attended a Democratic Unity event in Dorchester, and he quickly challenged Governor Charlie Baker to take a form of the People's Pledge that we all remember from Senator Elizabeth Warren's first campaign against Scott Brown. Of course, the governor who started off his general election campaign by going on air with a new television ad of his own and a separate super PAC that has been spending money on his behalf launched a brand new television ad. Uh, The governor made clear that he did not intend to take any pledges to restrict outside spending in this race. He said he would follow all of the relevant campaign finance reform rules, but that will leave Democrats looking to groups like the DGA to hopefully take another look at this race and see an opportunity and perhaps invest in a candidate like Jay Gonzalez, similar to the way they invested in Martha Coakley four years ago. Gonzalez, of course, is at a significant fundraising disadvantage to Charlie Baker. He has considerably less money in the bank. He is being joined on a ticket by Quentin Palfrey, who won the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor this week and also uh, does not have a lot of money banked for this general election campaign against Baker and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito. And without the pledge in place, Gonzalez followed up his challenge with another challenge to Governor Baker, asking him to forego any money from the Republican Governors Association, which he says takes money from the NRA. That, of course, did not go over so well with the Baker camp either. Uh, They refused to uh, disavow money from the RGA and instead pointed to the governor's failing grades uh, from the National Rifle Association. And so that leaves us uh, moving forward with no so-called People's Pledge in place. And when money is an issue, sometimes candidates look for free media or earned media. And uh, one way to get in front of the voters is uh, public debates, televised debates. How's the debate schedule shaping up, Matt? That's right. We, we learned this week as well that there appear to be three debates in the offing for this general election between Governor Baker and, and Jay Gonzalez. Gonzalez came out early, said that he had accepted five invitations to debate, obviously looking to get in front of voters as much as he can so they can see and hear him. He's at a, a name recognition deficit to the governor as well as a money deficit. Baker, in turn, said that he was accepting three debates, which sparked a little bit of controversy because the three debates that the governor has accepted all appear to be Boston-centered debates sponsored by WGBH, WBZ, and a a media consortium that includes uh, Channel 5 and and the Boston Globe and UMass and others. 
the two debates that Gonzalez also wanted to see on the schedule that the governor's campaign has rejected, one in Worcester and one in Springfield. Three debates, is that pretty typical at this point? Well, it does seem to be the magic number this cycle. Jay McMahon, the Republican nominee for Attorney General, calling for three debates against Attorney General Maura Healey. Those have not been accepted yet by Healey. Elizabeth Warren on primary night said she had agreed to three debates against GOP nominee Jeff Deal in their race for the U.S. Senate, and now Governor Baker agreeing to three. But if we go back just four years ago, when the governor's race was open and it was Baker against Martha Coakley, during that cycle, those two debated five times, including three debates in Boston, one in Chicopee, and one in Worcester. And some of those debates included all five candidates that were on the ballot, while a couple of them were just head-to-head. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Sam. Well, it's conventional political wisdom that incumbents and those who raise and spend the most usually win, and that's what made Tuesday's primaries so interesting, with Ayanna Presley's upset Congressman Mike Capuano, and Nika Elugardo's unseating of House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Jeff Sanchez. Mike Norton's here today to take a look at another aspect of Tuesday's primaries. Thanks, Sam. Uh, What might have gone under the radar Tuesday were attempts by eight sitting legislators to win new offices. We looked over the results today and we determined that the incumbents in this case, those eyeing new offices, went 500. So, uh, all right, interesting. Let's hear first, Mike, about some of the winners in this case. Okay. We'll start with Rep. Jeff Deal. The Whitman Republican lost to Mike Brady in a 2015 state Senate special election in which Deal won six of eight communities in the district but ran into big problems in the city of Brockton. Three years later, he set his sights higher, and Republicans nominated him to face Senator Elizabeth Warren on November 6th. Rep. Keiko Oral of Lakeville is also running statewide this year. She had no opponent Tuesday in her run for state treasurer and now goes up against the incumbent, Deb Goldberg, who is seeking a second four-year term. Rep. Kate Campanelli of Worcester was another Republican who won on Tuesday. She defeated her Republican colleague in the House, Rep. Kevin Kuros of Uxbridge, in the GOP primary for Worcester County Register of Deeds. So the Republican incumbents eyeing new jobs went 3-1 and one on Tuesday. How'd the Democrats do? Well, Sam, incumbent Democratic lawmakers seeking new jobs were not as fortunate, going 1-3. The winner, Rep. Diana DeZoglio of Benthuin, was unopposed in her primary bid. She can win a seat in the Senate in November and succeed Senator Kathleen O'Connor Ives of Newburyport if she can beat Republican Alexander Williams of Amesbury. Democrats reps Ivandro Carvalho of Dorchester, Juana Matias of Lawrence, and Senator Barbara Latalian of Andover will likely soon be looking for new jobs. Carvalho was outpolled by Rachel Rollins and Greg Henning, coming in third in the five-person Suffolk DA primary. Matias edged Latalian in the third congressional district primary, but they are among eight candidates in that race who are now waiting to see whether Lori Trahan holds on to her 52-vote margin over Dan Coe, who asked for a recount on Friday afternoon. Now, we hear a lot about lawmakers playing it safe on Beacon Hill and staying in their seats for a long time. These results show why. It's the old risk-reward dynamic. When incumbents give up their seats, they often move up, but they may also be moved out. Thanks, Mike. 
Thanks, Sam. Some campaign finance news from the state's highest court coming right in the middle of campaign season. Supreme Judicial Court on Thursday upheld the state's ban on corporations donating directly to political candidates. Katie Lannon, you covered this for us this week. Was this a surprise? You know, it really didn't seem to be. The lawyer for the plaintiffs, who are two businesses, 126 Self Storage and 1A Auto, which is owned by Republican congressional candidate Rick Green, the lawyer told reporters in March that they'd take it to the U.S. Supreme Court if they needed to. Of course, the lawyer, Jim Manley of the Goldwater Institute, also said then that he felt, and this is a quote, pretty good about our chances of getting at least one justice to go along with our view of the case. And that didn't happen. No, it didn't. None of the judges sided with the plaintiffs, although two Baker appointees, Scott Kafker and Kimberly Budd, they each wrote their own separate concurring opinions. And then as far as supporters of keeping the ban in place, Pam Wilmot of Common Cause said Thursday that her group was, quote, pleased and unsurprised by the ruling. Wilmot said that the U.S. Supreme Court and more than half a dozen circuit court cases from across the country have all concluded that states can limit direct contributions from businesses. So you said the plaintiffs uh, had indicated they'd be willing to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington. Is that going to happen? What's next? Well, one of the plaintiffs, Michael Kane of 126 Self Storage, he said yesterday that he would like to kick it up to the Supreme Court. He thinks it's unfair that his business is treated differently than unions are. It's unfair treatment, he said. And the lawyer, Jim Manley, said he'd be happy to take it there, but they're going to weigh their options. And it's something we should know by the beginning of December. Of course, the timing of this whole conversation is interesting because the SJC's ruling arrived as the United States senators are conducting their confirmation hearing for Brett Kavanaugh, uh, President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, who, if he's approved, would give Trump a second appointee to the nine-member bench. And given that one of the issues at play here is what's often described as the union loophole, the fact that unions can donate to candidates while businesses can't, it would be interesting to see what a more conservative court might make of this case and how that would impact the many Democrats who've run here with union support. And you talk about the timing of this uh, ruling. Uh, it came on one of the plaintiff's birthdays, didn't it? That's right. It came down on uh, Rick Green's birthday, although it probably wasn't as good a gift for him as the happy birthday congressman cake that uh, his management <laughs> team over at 1A Auto got him. It's a little premature. He's little still premature. got a face off against a to-be-determined Democrat, but I'm sure the cake was good. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. Grind it up, roll it up, and then burn it down soon. The start of legal marijuana sales is getting closer in Massachusetts. State regulators say it's possible that in two weeks they could be granting a final license for a retail marijuana shop. And with final approval in hand, businesses could start selling pot whenever they're ready. Colin Young covered the Cannabis Control Commission this week. And tell us, Colin, what has to happen if the TRIPC is to issue a final license at its September 20th meeting? Well, the big thing that needs to happen is that the Cannabis Control Commission's inspections team has to go out to each property and check that it meets all of the requirements in the law and in the CCC's regulations. CCC Chairman Steve Hoffman said Thursday he expects that those inspections will begin over the next week, plus or minus. 
When the CCC issued provisional licenses, they included a list of conditions that must be met before the businesses can get the ultimate green light. Those conditions include a check that the business is in compliance with DPH regulations, if it's been a medical marijuana facility as well, uh, a check that the business is in line with the CCC's regs, that the facility complies with all state, local uh, codes, bylaws, and ordinances, and that the business cooperates with the CCC's final inspection process. Uh, the last and certainly not least part of that, Sam, is that the business has to pay its licensing fee. And once all those conditions are met, the CCC has to vote at one of its bi-weekly meetings to issue a final license for the business to operate. Then it'll be up to the business when they want to open their doors to recreational consumers. So how many retail stores uh, have this provisional license from the CCC? And um, how many of those are ready for their final checkup from the TRIPC? Uh, so there are 11 retail stores that have been given provisional approval. Uh, there were uh, two more approved uh, just this uh, past Thursday. Uh, they're expected to be located in Leicester, Amesbury, Brookline, Northampton, Wareham, Plymouth, East Hampton, Salem, Fall River, Lowell, and Greenfield. The commission's also provisionally licensed seven cultivation facilities uh, in Leicester, Amesbury, Franklin, Plymouth, East Hampton, Lowell, and Fall River. Uh, right now, the CCC has uh, approved up to 225,000 square feet of marijuana canopy. Uh, Hoffman said this week that two or three of those businesses have told the commission that they're ready uh, for that final inspection. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, quickly, as we wrap up, Colin, the uh, CCC is also assuming control of the medical marijuana program this year. Where does that transition stand? Yeah, a lot of moving parts with that one. Uh, but the CCC voted Thursday to approve draft regulations for the medical marijuana program and a separate set of regulations for uh, the co-location of medical marijuana and non-medical marijuana establishments. Uh, they opened a public comment period Thursday on those regs, and that will run through October 29th. The regs will be posted to masscannabiscommission.com, and you can send comments to cannabiscommission at mass.gov. All right. Thanks, Colin. Thanks a lot, Sam. Have a good weekend. Too. Don't call me wrong. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.